welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a legend, a legend, Trevor Keith from the band Face to Face is here, and it is a... It's a a different kind of journey into punk rock. We get into all that. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me and we can communicate that way. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by... By telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you enjoy this podcast that we do and that we do, you know, tons of episodes <laughs> and uh, it's not going to let up. You, you can tell them that and you can tell them that it's going to be going on for uh, forever. We're going to keep doing it. Uh, you can also support the show by subscribing to it and rating it on your podcast platform of choice. And thank you to everyone that does do that. And speaking of thank you, a huge thank you to all the people that go over to patreon.com and support the show over there. Patreon.com slash turn at a punk. It means a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we do some fun stuff over there. There's some footnotes. There's, you know, with Chris O'Toole. There's some uh, some secret episodes. There's there's some fun stuff over there. So head over to patreon.com and check it out. And uh, speaking of support, this thing would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, we like what you do. Do what you do. But just don't do it out of your own pocket anymore. And they help cover the cost of doing this thing, which is, uh, you know, very much appreciated because... Uh, you know, it it it, uh, it it there are some costs. There are some costs. Anyway, thank you very much to Vans for helping me cover those. All right. Uh, oh, also check out over there at floodmagazine.com for punk as fuck. Uh, some videos of myself going around the city of Los Angeles, chilling, hanging out with some punk rock luminaries, talking about why that city is so important. We filmed it a few years ago, and there's some great stuff on there. So check that stuff out. Also, fucked up has put out Year of the Horse. We're three three releases in. I don't know. There's like a lot of movements. There's a lot of opera speaking. It's very serious. Mike has put uh, a lot of effort into this thing with with everyone else, obviously, but um, I, I, I'm not going to get bogged down in that. I'm very, very proud of this song, though. I think this song's incredible. It is an hour and a half, though, so buckle up. The fourth chapter has not come out yet. It's going to be dropping very soon, but check that thing out. It's over there at bandcamp.com slash fucked up. Yeah, let's go with that. That's where it is. Bandcamp.com slash fucked up. I hope that's where it is. Uh, you can find it. It's out there. All right. On to today's show. Today on the show, as I said off the top, the legend from face to face, Trevor Keith. Now, Face to Face is a band that I saw many, many times over the years and, and continue to see many, many times over the years. Uh, they are a band that um, were a gateway band for tons, like a whole generation of kids. And Trevor's someone that I've always wanted to talk to about this thing because I knew that he was someone that had a history playing in metal bands and then got into this stuff kind of you know, later in his, his early 20s and then ends up forming one of the most important bands that kind of emerged from that California nineties melodic punk scene. Um, and you know, they continue to go, they're just about to release their 10th album. Uh, Trevor will talk a little bit more about this on the episode, but it's called no way out, but through, which will hopefully be coming out later this year. And it's they're back on fat, which is 
you know, the, the home. So it, it, everything is right in the world that way too. He also has another project with his kid, which I'm living very much in envy of doing that one day with my kids. Uh, Icarus Daedalus is the name of the project. And uh, it's with his son. And uh, yeah, anyway, he, once again, he talks about that a little bit more on this episode. But check out both of those things. And check out all of Face to Face's stuff. They have an incredible catalog. Ten studio albums. There's also live records and EPs. And anyway, this is a fun episode. We talk about some, some cool stuff. All right, everyone. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Trevor Keith on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> Trevor, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, as I was just telling you off air, you are a legend and, you know, like many other people in this world have had a massive impact on my musical journey, but I got to start this thing off the way they all start off, which is Trevor, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm honored. Let me just say for starters, I appreciate that. That's a really great thing to hear and it never gets old. Um, punk rock for me, uh, was something that came a little bit later in my life because when I first discovered punk rock, um, I didn't immediately gravitate to it. Um, I grew up in an, in an area outside of Los Angeles, far enough out in the sticks where we were pretty isolated and, um, our local culture was very heavy metal scene driven at the time, like bands like Iron Maiden and stuff like that. That was what all of my, my friends listened to. So um, when I first started hearing about punk rock, I didn't really get it. And, uh, you know, probably I was probably 15 or 16. You know, this is like in the 80s. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and so once I had gotten out of high school and I started forming bands, um, then a buddy of mine turned me on to a bad religion record and i'd never even heard of bad religion at that point and uh, i was like wait a minute this is punk rock this is really awesome <laughs> like <laughs> these are great songs and there's good attitude and great lyrics and and you know it was just so everything was so quality about it that i was like okay i think i do actually like punk rock now and then um then i got turned on to descendants and I was hooked at that point. I was like, wait a minute. These are amazing, you know, just syrupy pop songs with like just the best, you know, performance and everything. And it just had so much heart and and uh, it was so immediate and compelling that uh, I kind of I found that after I was already, you know, almost 20 years old. I was probably 19 or 20 when I first heard those two bands. My exposure to punk rock previous to that I think was bands like Germs and Dead Kennedys and stuff like that, which are great, but I didn't really have an appreciation for, for that at the time. And so when I found my gateway through bands like Bad Religion and, and Descendants, which were a little bit later than those other bands, um, then it made me want to just know everything about punk rock. And then I, I found an appreciation for the stuff that initially that didn't really hook me in. So, yeah, I was probably about 20 years old or so when I finally uh, discovered that there were aspects of punk that I like. And then I, I just kind of never looked back from there. It's funny because, like, you know, metal and punk rock, by the time the mid 80s or the, even the early 80s is kind of happening, it's already sp splitting off and it's very faction. But it's it's funny to look back like a few years earlier and you have bands like, you know, the Adams, which had 
Izzy Stradlin playing beside, you know, uh, you know, members of BFL, or you had like these, there was like a lot more cross pollination and like, it really, it all comes from the same DNA, right? It's all New York dolls at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, and well, and Ramones and, and motorhead. motorhead. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, just throwing in motorhead, for example, like a lot of people might think of motorhead as a, as a metal band or a hard rock band, but you know, they were punk rock. Hell, Iron Maiden uh, was considered a punk rock band on their first album, on their self-titled record, even though they're a metal band. But, you know, they had the singer, Paul Diano, on their first record and second record, Killers. He had the short hair. He didn't have the same look as the other guys. And um, his delivery as a singer was more punk rock, even though the songs were more, like, progressive, you know? So... You're right. There was a whole lot of crossover, especially in the 80s. I know, you know, we talk about the New York Dolls and Ramones and Sex Pistols and even The Clash. That was all late 70s, early 80s. But by the mid 80s, you had a lot of hard rock metal and punk rock crossover. And then um, that's when I was in I was in high school in the mid 80s. I graduated in 1987. I know I'm showing my age, (laughs) but that era of that kind of uh, conglomeration of punk and metal with bands like DRI and stuff. Um, that was, it wasn't really well defined, I think, until later when it started splitting off. And then, you know, maybe when you were a kid in school, a little bit later in the early 90s, you had your metal kids and your punk kids, and they didn't really get along. You had the factions starting to split up. Yeah, I think even by the time I was getting into it, it was even less interesting than that. You know, like by the time I was you know, uh, you know, it was still there was still like vestiges of of that kind of world, but like more, I think it almost like post Nirvana, it just it changed everything, right? Because it it kind of turned it, it seems like it just turned music upside down in a way. Like, you know, so uh, kids were just into everything, you know, there's no I think it, yeah. it really opened a floodgate again for a minute. Yeah, for sure, for sure. The lines definitely with grunge and all that, the lines got blurred again. Yeah. Um and and actually, I think they, you know, in the 90s, when we were coming up, uh, there was like the underground punk rock and, and what would become, I guess, pop punk defined a little bit later in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But um, by the 2000s, everything kind of conglomerated back again into a, a mixture of things. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. It, it's very cyclical that way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, going back before that, where were you kind of getting into these bands? Like, obviously, I guess Iron Maiden's not being played on the radio or anything. So where were you kind of getting into the metal stuff? Just from friends, you know, that was like what the people that I hung out with in school and everything listened to. Um, and uh, it was just the culture at the time. Were there any local bands? Like, uh, you know. Oh, been- yeah. <laughs> we had some really hilarious local bands uh where i grew up we had a band called black dove that build themselves as the band who eats glass which is just incredible (laughs) did they they literally eat glass no but that's what they wrote on their flyers whenever they would do kegger parties or whatever like i said i i was out in the sticks so you you saw local bands if you went out to a kegger party which usually consisted of like an old house foundation slab in the middle of the desert somewhere and people would bring in a bunch of generators 
and the band would set up on the concrete and there'd be kegs of beer and it was just a free for all. And you stayed there until the cops came and broke it up. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yeah, it was fun. It was, it was crazy. They got, they got pretty crazy sometimes. Um, but, but yeah, it was, it was pretty fun. There weren't really any bands of note. I don't think that came out of that, that time period, the local bands, but you know, everyone was trying to emulate the music of, of the day. And it was mostly metal, those bands. I think when we, we started off as a metal band, uh, Matt and I, at first we had a band called Victoria Manor that was basically, we were trying to imitate Iron Maiden and, uh, and then we, that band kind of fizzled out. We lost our, our, our drummer and guitar player. And when Matt and I decided to form a new band, what would become Face to Face, we were almost like a new wave band at that point. We were, we sounded more like The Cure or, you know, or um, the Psychedelic Furs and, and that kind of stuff that we, the music we were also listening to side by side with metal. That's like the then, Zero Tolerance demo? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off of that. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's hilarious because we called the band zero tolerance, which we found out was a hardcore band from, yeah. from I think Boston or somewhere in no, the New England. Buffalo, Buffalo, Buffalo. Okay. And actually and, Darren Pfeiffer was the drummer on the, in the second kind of lineup when they did a seven inch. Oh, was he really? I never knew that. That's awesome. Yeah. That's yeah, amazing. So <laughs> very, very small circle. This punk rock world. Yeah, today. it is. So we, we, once we found out there was another band and this is pre-internet. So you find out by, you know, scouring as many zines as you can and then you if you see your band name in there you're like oh crap we can't use that name anymore especially if they put a record out before you so um so we settled on face to face not knowing that was a, a 80s pop band from boston that was the boston connection and uh we didn't we wouldn't find that out until many years later by then by then it was too late for us to change our name and that band had broken up you know shortly after they formed Wow, so, I never uh, heard of Face to Face from Boston. You stumped me with that one. Yes, well, look it up sometime. They're they're yeah. out there on the internet, and uh, it, uh, Lori Sargent was the singer. They were a very kind of poppy dance band, um, nothing like what we are. <laughs> um, so it's it's pretty different. If you stumble on the wrong Face to Face, you'll know in an instant, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we we trying to get away from that metal and, and trying to do something different. We were doing more of this like new wave stuff. And then, um, like I said, I started listening to bad religion and, and descendants and even Fugazi at the time I got turned on to, um, the, the first two Fugazi EPs. And, uh, I was like, Whoa. my mind was blown. I was like, this is amazing. I love this stuff. It didn't have that pop sensibility, but it just had so much heart. And it, it to me, it was like art, rock or something because the arrangements were very unique and original and the rhythms were cool and and so those three bands really were the my my entry and my big influence in the very beginning of of face to face um of course i like social distortion too that was a pretty easy move <laughs> mainly not for the songs even as much as just the vibe because the band just was so cool you know with that whole retro kind of slash rockabilly vibe and uh, so, yeah, those those actually I should include all four. Those four bands had a lot to do in influencing the songs we wrote for our, our debut album, Don't Turn Away. And um, because of those bands, we got more aggressive with our music. So it, it, it changed from like this new wave thing, even though the songs still had pop structures. But we went 
faster with the, with the tempos, a little bit more distorted, a little bit more aggressive, but we still had like a pop sensibility in there too. And, and we just, by the time we had formulated that, that sound, um, we, you know, we just loved it for ourselves. There weren't a lot of bands that we know of that were actually doing it at the time. Doesn't mean it wasn't happening because it was everywhere, but um, being isolated and not really knowing what we were doing, we were just trying to make music that made us happy, you know, and, uh, and then we just would go out and play and we'd watch other punk rock bands go out and play. And, you know, we'd see, stage diving and circle pits and all that kind of shit that we weren't really exposed to growing up and uh we'd have to travel like to LA or Orange County and stuff and to see that and you know it had been around for a decade at that point <laughs> but um it just wasn't much we were exposed to in our you know growing up and uh and then yeah we just it just was something that just fit so well with where we were as uh young adults at the time and and uh you know just, like i said we just never looked back so did victoria manor or zero tolerance play outside of victoriaville um sorry victoria manor never played outside of victorville um as zero tolerance i think we might have done a show or two at this venue in riverside called spanky's which was kind of the inland empire punk rock club you know yeah i think the, i've heard of it the, or team flyers definitely maybe yeah that was the spot and uh it was only about maybe a 40 minute drive for us from where we lived <laughs> i think we did a gig or two i know our first show we ever did we were we called ourselves zero tolerance and that was at a kegger party <laughs> you know in a warehouse um but we we pretty quickly changed our name to face to face so, so who was probably zero a well, Zero Tolerance was us as a three-piece. It was me and Matt, of course, who formed it. And then we found uh, Rob, who had become our drummer. And then uh, by the time we were kind of changing into face-to-face, -face, we uh, Rob had a, a buddy that he recommended we should uh, try out. So he came down and played guitar, adding, adding the second guitar. And, uh, and we loved the way it sounded. But at the time, he was... Um, active duty in the military, in the Air Force. And um, even though we'd written some songs together and had played some shows as a four piece, um, he got called to Desert Storm at the oh, time. Yeah. And so he was in Bahrain, you know, he was gone for six months, nine months. And uh, after he came back, we, we tried to make it work with him. But um, at that point, we had just kind of formed this thing with the three-piece face-to-face and it was working well and and uh after six or nine months and then having having um you know the guitar player coming back it just didn't really work for us so we parted ways and we just continued on as a three-piece until uh all the way up until 95 when we did our second album big choice so who were you playing with in Zero Tolerance? Was it just kind of like any band you could, or was there like a scene of kind of similarly like-minded kind of like, you know, bands that are looking to sort of like old wave and, and new wave stuff? Oh, um, well, I'll mention the band name. They were the same bands we would continue to play with as we became more of a, a punk rock band. Um, I don't know if anyone listening will will know these bands. So, uh, well, Voodoo Glow Skulls and Guttermouth yep. are probably the most well-known because they still exist and they're still putting out music and playing shows. 
but then there were some other local scenester kind of bands like flying moco and and old nick and uh dos clown oh and- dos clown i know <laughs> <laughs> like lethal aggression records right like that kind of scene well um yeah yeah that kind of stuff dr strange records yeah. Lethal aggression um then you know we we would try to get out as far as we could so occasionally we play in la but that was always a tough nut to crack um we became buddies with uh brandon from harmful of swallowed we played with them a bunch uh we used to play the anti-club a lot mm-hmm. uh, we even made our way out to ventura and oxnard and played with um ill repute and uh kind of got into that whole vibe a little bit and just you know we were we were trying to expand our influence as much as we could so but that inland empire scene was really the core you know playing spankies and playing with some of those bands i I mentioned earlier it kind of seems like from what people have said that have been on the show that it's really like a rebuilding period that's going on in the late 80s into the early 90s like before the punk rock boom that you know you you're all a part of that like there wasn't much kind of left throughout the late 80s in terms of punk rock in kind of like southern california like did it feel like that like was it was it kind of like could you feel like more and more kids coming out to shows as things went on like obviously as a band that normally happens but could you feel like kind of a groundswell of energy around this music yeah yeah and and not initially i mean initially we were just trying to make a band that that we liked and trying to make songs that we thought were cool but in a way, in, in Southern California, at least at that time, we sort of felt like we were doing it in a vacuum, you know? Mm-hmm. And the more we would learn about the scene, it always seemed like we were learning about bands that were doing stuff just right before us, but then weren't really very active anymore. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and, you know, you got to remember like all the cool scenes from other parts of the country like I think in New York, hardcore was already well established and and raging and going on, um, and then you had the DC scene and and uh, and all that. But California, you know, you had like your DIs and 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 bands like that, but they weren't super active, you know. Mm-hmm. So like the first show we ever did at Spanky's, we opened for Jawbox, and. Um, and that was like the kind of stuff that was that was happening at the moment. Yeah. But yeah. pop punk was kind of flying under the radar. And I, I remember there was a record store, right? A door or two down from Spanky's. And I went in there and I said, hey, um, I just I just found this band Big Drill Car. And I, I really think they're cool. What other bands can you recommend that are like Big Drill Car? And the guy was like, well, have you heard of Green Day? I was like, no. And he gave me a Green Day's debut album at the time. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. This exists too. And um, and so I became a big Green Day fan early on. And then we were lucky enough to to do shows with them in, in the very beginning, like before Dookie came out, um, when they were still kind of like a, a you know, a, a garage band or whatever. Um, and and then we were playing shows with Offspring at, you know, places like Munchies and Pomona and Anti Club and stuff yep. like that too. So of course, those two bands in particular would go on to explode in the '90s and and become some of the most well-known bands even still from that movement. But I don't think anyone really knew it was a movement at the time. You know, it was very it was very strange. 
I think there were just a bunch of bands out there doing it, you know. I love that, you know, late 80s, early 90s period you're kind of discussing where like, yeah, you have bands like, you know, Neurosis playing with with no yeah. effects and stuff. Like yeah. It was really like, like we were talking about earlier, like that was like almost like punk rock. Like it wasn't big enough yet for all these bands to kind of exist in their own world. So everyone was kind of like, you know, you're playing with Jawbox, for instance. Like it's it's it it's kind of cool that it was so diverse at that point because it was it was small. It really was, and it, it couldn't be defined. We we played with Jawbreaker at um uh the claremont colleges once and uh i was already listening to jawbreaker at the time so i was thrilled um we played with them right when their um bivouac record the second album came out and uh that was awesome you know and then we played we play with 15 we play with um you know mr t experience and you know <laughs> yeah. popsicko and all those kind of bands from that time so um yeah, it was a lot more mixed uh, before bands kind of broke out and defined their own movements on their own, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's almost like really reflected on that Rhetoric Records label that you did that split with Horace Pinker on. Yeah, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. You go through that catalog and it's like a who's who of underground music, but like in in vastly different worlds. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, because oh, we were we were all hustling, you know, we were all just trying to find, I think for us, I wouldn't say we were hustling necessarily, but I was looking for any opportunity for our band to just play someplace in front of people, you know, and if you met a guy along the way that was like, hey, do you want to do a split seven inch with Horace Pinker? I was like, sure, why not? You know, they're yeah. friends of ours. We play shows with them occasionally. Yeah. And, you know, we were definitely playing tons of club shows with Horace Pinker at the time. So, um, you know, it just made sense. They're a great band and they're really, you know, like, I guess, cause they were never on, I don't know, like it's, it's weird how they're, they're kind of not really brought up in the same way that a lot of other bands are because they're, they're like, you're saying they're a great band. Yeah, they were awesome. There was another band called Fuel out of uh, oh, yeah. out of San Francisco that I just I I played that CD until I just wore holes in it. <laughs> I love that CD so much. Well, there's a Toronto connection too because they did a split with Flag Camp from from here. Um, oh, they did. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love that band right. so much. Fuel is uh, yeah, and really like you know a band that sort of set like you know for a particular style of pop punk, but like. You know that later hot water music and against me and, and all yep. sorts of other bands were kind of like the gruffer vocal approach to it yeah now the some of the guys from fuel ended up reforming into another band i'm gonna have I'm, i don't know if i remember do you remember what that band was called no is it was once also great oh i'm trying what to think it? what it is i'll fix it in the intro if we if we can't come up with it yeah if you can think of it yeah cool <laughs> but um yeah, I don't know. It was uh, like you said. It, it was uh, just a lot of a lot of different bands all kind of coming up around the same time, and I think it it was exciting because it felt new, mm -hmm. um, and no one really knew where it was where where any of it was heading. <laughs> but it was great. I mean, we played with so many cool bands in the beginning, you know, and uh, and that. So yeah, that's kind of like our very early early entry into the punk rock world so what was the first show you remember where you know like you experienced that kind of slamming and that kind of like that punk rock energy that you guys were taking in 
four year band? Or do you remember that? Like, was there a moment where, you know, things were kind of clicking? Yeah, um, pretty early on, which was very encouraging, you know, and, and that was gave us the gave us the energy to want to keep doing it because we were all working full time jobs during the day. Um, and then, you know, you'd get off at five or six, most, or at least me and Matt were, or actually Rob too, we were working construction jobs, which were physically demanding. And then, you know, you'd come home, shower, we'd load our gear, drive an hour to wherever we were going to play. Cause we lived far from all these cities <laughs> uh, and it'd be like a Wednesday night and you'd get in sound check, play your set. By the time you're leaving, it's midnight. You got to drive an hour back home unload all your gear, get up at six o'clock to go to work the next day in construction. And uh, we were doing that a few nights a week. So it was, it, we fed off of that energy. And, and I, it, was, it was probably those early shows at Spanky's, I would say, not the first or second time we played, but like the third, fourth and fifth time that we played, when we started seeing people react to our, our songs that we had written and been playing in our, our practice space that no one had really heard at the time, then uh, everybody was just like kind of looking at each other, just sort of blown away, like shit, is this really happening? This is so cool. It's amazing. It's exactly what we were hoping for. And uh, so, yeah, I, I would say probably, you know, pretty early on, um, we saw people at least pogoing and, you know, starting to mix it up and a circle forming a little bit. Stage diving, I don't think was that big of a thing when we were playing venues that are like 200 people, yeah. <laughs> 150, 200 people. But as the crowds got bigger, then more of that element started to come in too. And uh, it was just, I don't know, the energy that that comes from all of that, you just feed off of it and there, there's nothing else like it. Well, it's amazing how that eventually is like starts to become like almost like a learned behavior. Like people are witnessing it on TV. And then from that, they're like bringing it to the shows. Like, Right. Like, it. this is what you do at a yeah. punk rock show yeah exactly yeah. Like mtv i can remember at the time like i'm sure much music did but I, I certainly remember being on vacation watching stuff on mtv that was like you know what is moshing and you know exp <laughs> explanations on like what you should do if you went to a show so it was like okay well this is gonna get a lot bigger now yeah yeah and it was i thought once we started um going to the point of our band where record, you know, labels, A&R people were starting to come to our shows and watch us. Then I just thought it was so cheesy because the, here you have these people that are so completely removed from what's actually happening at the shows. You know, they're there with an agenda to see, well, oh, can I sell some records? Look at how many kids showed up or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they'd be like, well, well, you know, it's really great how the kids mosh or whatever. And I, be like shut the fuck up man you don't even know what you're talking about <laughs> you wouldn't know moshing or you know number one you're calling it moshing and that's a term that comes from you know uh, uh i can't even think of the band i'm trying to think of um you know uh, anthrax you know? oh yeah yeah <laughs> <Caught> the mosh mosh <laughs> caught a mosh and all that so i don't know it just seemed like a way for people who are really square and didn't really know anything about punk rock to try and make a connection with it you know mm -hmm. uh and then you'd see like a and r guys try to get on stage and stage dive and the crowd would part and they would eat shit on the floor <laughs> you just laugh <laughs> you got it that's, that's that's true dedication if you're willing to risk life and limb it if you is. want to sign a band it is yeah 
is <laughs> that's some old music industry shit. I don't think AR people are really uh oh god, uh, no, not these days. Not no. these days. Um when like you know, another thing that keeps coming up on this show, particularly about this time period, well, prior to this in Los Angeles and that kind of area, is that you know, there was a lot of violence at shows. Obviously, it's become almost legend at this point. Did you yeah. see that when you were starting to go to these shows and you guys were starting to play out? Was it or that already kind of subsided, or was it always present? No, it was there. It was, it was there for us. I, I wouldn't, uh, I can think of a handful of times where, uh, we did shows that, that got really violent and they weren't usually shows we were, we were headlining and they weren't the small club gigs, but it was when, um, the show started to get a little bit bigger. You know, it's like a thousand, 1500 people, even 2000. And that's when these promoters were starting to put the bands together that had the good draws, right? So, um, you know, we these little small festivals that would come up. We did a festival called the Pig Fest in, uh, I think it was in Temecula once, and a massive riot broke out. And, and as a matter of fact, some of the guys from one of the bands who were playing, uh, Old Nick, were in the crowd, and uh, the guitar player, uh, just got beat up really, really badly, like within an inch of his life because of this riot that broke out. So that was some pretty awful violence. You know, um, we did a, a, another festival at Glen Helen that uh, was actually on the local news and everything. Wow. <laughs> there were tons of bands on it from Cadillac yeah. Tramps to Guttermouth to us to Voodoo Glow Skull, like everybody was on it. Yeah. And uh and we were one of the last bands of the night to play. I don't think we were the very last band, but we were in the last two or three. And by the time we came on, people just rushed the stage and were taking gear off the stage and it just turned into a full blown riot. And uh, so that was scary, you know, that turned into a mess. Another time we played a venue called Patriotic Hall with Vandals and Pennywise. And I think Voodoo might've been on that one too. I'm not trying to draw a connection to voodoo and violence though. No, no, I, I that doesn't yeah. exist. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but yeah, dude, that was another one where like, and, and it was usually the fault of the promoter and in most of these cases. Um in this one, I remember specifically the promoter sold out the tickets in pre-sales, and then he went ahead and sold at the door because he got a line of people the night of the show. So he just started selling tickets at the door. The venue filled half full. He took half of the pre-sales and then half of the other people that bought pre-sales were outside and he just shut and locked the doors and said, we're at capacity. You can't come in. And, uh, and people just went nuts outside, outside, started lighting trash cans on fire and throwing them at cars. And it was scary, man. It was, it was, that was a really scary night. Um, but you know, I do remember some other stuff too, like, um, what would happen a lot? You're making me remember now because it's been a while. As I normally <laughs> find that's the thing with the show. It's almost like I have an old brain. Yeah. <laughs> so you know what I do remember? Uh, a problem we would experience frequency, and I think frequently, and a lot of other punk rock bands had this, is when you would go and play venues and they would hire security at these venues that didn't understand what the audiences were going to do. And, mm -hmm. and so some of the security guys would get all like threatened and pumped up and they would take what was happening in the crowd as like a threat of violence. And then they would in turn become violent with the kids, not realizing that the people in the audience were having fun and they know how to 
have a circle pit and they know how to pick people up when they fall down. And, you know, the crowd usually polices itself and they do a pretty damn good job at it 90% of the time. Um, but I, I remember one show he did in Fresno, uh, I think it was at the Cadillac club and there weren't even that many people there, man. There was probably maybe about a hundred people at the most, maybe slightly more. So a, a circle pit broke out and it was a big round one with not many people. It was large in size, but because the crowd wasn't very big, it was just sparse, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, the security guard right in front of me in, in the barricade, he waited for a guy to come around and right as he was running around toward him, put out his fist and just clocked him right in the forehead. And I watched the guy's head split from his hairline all the way down to his eye, right on the punch. And I almost threw up. It was so disgusting and shocking to see that happen, like right in front of you, you know? Yeah. And we immediately stopped the show. And I think we walked off stage and, and just didn't even play anymore. Cause we're like, we can't play a venue if your security is going to beat up the audience that paid money to come and see the band. I mean, this is, and you know, it's happened a million times throughout our career since, but this was actually in one of the early days. So that was, yeah. uh, that was frequently a problem. Well, I, it's like you said, you know, it's it, like we we're talking about, like as the stuff's kind of coming in and people are learning about it and how to do it, like, you know, the, the, the knowledge wasn't necessarily being passed these people doing security yeah like so you, they, they weren't prepared for it they had no idea what was going on like i remember being at shows and they were like security guards talking about how the audience were fighting each other and it's like no no everyone's just everyone's just watching it's like it's okay like right and, and it's almost like they they were like the gasoline on the fire a lot of the times yeah because once the audience started seeing someone being aggressive toward them then they would start getting mad and then a lot of times that would erupt in like a riot or a big you know bunch of violence would break out mm -hmm. and you know this was early we didn't travel with a a road crew or anything you know nowadays we have a tour manager i mean for a long time and the tour manager has a security meeting before the show and he talks to the security and says hey, our fans will do X, Y, and Z. We don't want you stepping in unless it gets to this level. But uh, Trevor's going to handle the audience. If they get up on stage and he doesn't want them there, he's going to let you know, but he's going to handle it first. I don't want security up there cracking skulls the minute someone sets foot on stage. I, I know how to run my stage when the band is performing and I can usually easily shoo people off and then it's part of the show and it's fun and there's no aggression happening. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, 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 a lot can be solved through doing those things, but you learn that over time. So a band has to learn how to do that. And, and then the, the, the venue has to learn it too. So it's just those kind of growing pains, but it might have something to do with what we were talking about earlier is even though punk rock was already 12, 15 years old, strictly speaking at this point, this newer wave, I guess, was maybe called like the third wave of punk rock. Um, in a lot of ways, we kind of felt like we were doing it in a vacuum because we were playing venues where people didn't know what punk rock was and, mm -hmm. and bouncers really didn't get it. And you had promoters that were willing to stick their neck out because they were fans of the music. A lot of times they were guys that had labels or worked at record stores or whatever and just wanted to bring the bands in. But they didn't always have the influence or experience to be able to handle all aspects of it. 
So is that kind of like roster on Doctor Strange, kind of that scene, like, you know, gutter mouth, uh, Luda Glow Skulls, a rhythm collision as well, I guess. Like, was that kind of like the early scene that you guys were a part of in the beginning? Obviously, in the very beginning, I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We we all played together a lot of times. You know, we we, we play together constantly. Also, Rhythm Collision too. Yeah, we played with we played with them a bunch too in the beginning. Uh, a great band too. Another band that's also like you know not really brought up. You know, and just have so many great records, tons of stuff they put up. Yeah, I you know Rhythm Collision was an early influence on me because I watched them and I was like, oh, these songs are so well made. Like these are great hooks and good harmonies, and the band just delivered. You know, so it, I think a lot of what helped us hone in ultimately what we would feel is a good developed sound is by being there and learning and watching from all these other great bands. You know, so how long is it before you start? you know, heading out and seeing, you know, other playing other places, you know, other we, than Southern California type thing. Yeah. I mean, at the beginning it was really just Southern California. And then maybe after six, nine months time, we decided to pull our money together and buy a van. And then we would, we would road trip up to San Francisco, maybe play a Bakersfield or a Fresno. Um, we played Gilman street a, a couple of times, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think we went up as far as like Reno, you know, we didn't, we didn't venture out too far because it was all, they were always like weekender things, whatever we can get off of work. Um, I, I felt like we were, we were really like stepping out the first time we went all the way to Phoenix <laughs> for a show. <laughs> it was like, oh, we're leaving the state. We're actually playing out of state for a show. This is so cool. And then, uh, and then not long after we released Don't Turn Away and we were kind of getting out and playing more. Um, we met, uh, who did I meet? I met Tim. I met Tim from the band, the Grimm. So he mm-hmm. goes by Tim Grimm, another Oxnard band, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and because we had, we were doing shows with, um, Ill Repute and, uh, Carl, the drummer for Ill Repute, super, super cool, man, cool dude. Um, He's like, hey, I know you guys drove a long way to Ventura. You're more than welcome to crash at my house after the show. So we stayed at his place and Tim was there. And I remember we were hanging out after the show. And uh, he's like, so what are you guys doing? Like, you know, what do you what do you want to do? And we're like, well, we want a tour. We just put out this record and all this stuff. And he goes, well, you know, I, I work with the guys in no effects. And Mike just started this label. And I think he would probably be really interested in signing you guys for his label. And I was like, yeah, man, put me in touch with him. So he gave me Mike's number. And um, a couple of weeks later, I called him and I said, hey, man, uh, I got your number from Tim. And he said I should give you a call because you have a new label that you're you're doing. And uh, we are frustrated Dr. Strange because we see that people like the record and they want to get it, but we already sold out of this pressing and I don't know when we're going to get more. And I don't know if they're in stores and all this kind of stuff. And uh, Mike's like, yeah, send me a copy. So we sent it to him and he listened and, and he called back and he was interested. And uh, so that was a big, that opened a lot of doors or it, it opened a large door, I should say, because um, then once we were on fat records, then the, of course, the, the huge benefit of that is being able to play shows with no effects. And uh, 
So because of that, we we got to tour Europe with Lagwagon. Um, we opened for No Effects in Salt Lake City, and then they took us on a tour that was um, through Canada and parts of the U.S. It dropped down. And, you played uh, Toronto. Um, you guys in Ten Foot Pole. Yeah, it was us. I mean, it was No Effects, Ten Foot Ten Foot Pole, Face to Face. Yeah, I think it was just the three bands, right? There well, wasn't it, a fourth on it. Yeah, unless there was on other legs, but certainly in Toronto, it was just the three. There could have been local openers here and there, but that was our first real tour. I mean, we did tour Europe before that, but that was such a culture shock, weird thing for us. I don't know if any of us really count that. It was just so bizarre because <laughs> here we are. We The only show we'd ever done outside of California was a Phoenix show in Arizona. And then we jumped on a plane and flew to Germany and did a tour for two or three weeks. So that was, what was, that? Uh, that was who were you playing with there like what was that like that was a trial by fire well initially we thought we were going to go with no effects and mm. um and then we realized kind of right before the tour that it was really a lag wagon tour and uh, which was great because lag wagon had already been over with no effects multiple times and they were at the level now where they wanted to start headlining in europe so we were their main support on their first headline tour right after the trashed record came out. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was actually a really great tour. The guys were super friendly and super fun to hang out with. And, and uh, you know, they would let us ride with them and we all slept on the floor of the promoter's flat together and stayed in youth hostels. And, you know, it was, it was cool. It was punk rock. Um, but it was, like I said, it was a massive culture shock, you know, because none of us had even really been out of the country. So when we got back and we toured with no effects through Canada, that felt a little bit more like what we were used to, except even in Canada, I guess, seemed slightly less exotic after going to Germany. Yeah. That was the first, that was the first new country we traveled to. We might've been weirded out by Canada, I guess. <laughs> but, Canada's um, kind of like America crossed with Germany too, when you think about it. So it's, it's like, uh, you know, you kind of experienced yeah. it already. Yeah. I feel like one half of Canada is, is, you know, familiar enough for Americans, the, the Western half. And then you get into the French Canadian side, it feels a lot more like Europe on that side. Yeah, definitely. So definitely. You get a little bit of, you get a little bit of both there, which is cool. Um, and we loved Canada. I mean, the, God, the audiences were so good and they, it was like, you know, we, we would come out and play and they would listen for two or three songs. And by the third or fourth song, people were, were in, you know, almost every night and we're like, oh, this is like the best shit ever. So that really, that tour was the thing that I think really opened it up for us. And then, you know, people were talking about our band and they, they kind of knew who we were at that point. And uh, so I would say that was kind of the real turning point for us going from like clubs to being a touring band. It's, it's funny also like talking about fat records, like, how Mike came out with that label and just did did it on like a different scale. Like he was just like, okay, I'm going to do this thing and it, it's not going to be like anyone's done an independent punk label before. Like, you know, just like, you know, you're, you know, bands that have come on that were signed to that label early on, like him coming in when they were recording the record being like, yeah, let's sign a contract, like all this kind of stuff where it was just, you know, on a, uh, like, like you're saying, it's like a different level of professionalism where those records were everywhere. Oh yeah. Yeah. Their distribution was amazing. And, uh, they, yeah, they had the capability to get the record everywhere. And 
they because of no effects, not unlike how a lot of other labels came out. I mean, I think Fat or I think Mike, Fat Mike, was watching Epitaph, mm -hmm. and he was like, "I want to do that. I think I can do that. I can do it my own way. Make it cool." <laughs> so, um, you know, it was the thing. I mean, we went from Fat being really our first actual label in terms of distribution and, and sales to making a bunch of other records and then eventually coming back to fat record after fat records after working with all those other labels and the great thing about that is even though fat had grown immensely over those 25 years um it's still run by mike and aaron mm -hmm. and it's still run with the utmost level of uh you know fairness credibility cooperation no one you never get the sense being at fat records that you're going to be ripped off or that anyone's doing anything shady everyone is just you know they're cool it's kind of like we were welcomed back like the prodigal sons that we were you know what i mean but mm -hmm. there was no judgment whatsoever it wasn't like oh so you went out there and you did your your major label thing and that failed so now you're going to come crawling back to us there was never any any speak like that it was just like uh yeah let's hear your new music and i played it for them and they're like fuck yeah let's make this record you know and mm -hmm. uh in some ways it was almost like no years had passed at all just because everybody was so welcoming and so cool coming back. So after all the other experiences I'd had with other record labels, including some major labels, it just felt great to know that this kind of record label, this specific record label existed and they were still willing to work with us and, and put out our music because, uh, you know, it, just, it feels like home. Yeah, like, and, and no one, you know, other than sort of interpersonal issues, no one's ever come on here that's been on fat and even people that have left it and, and said bad things about the label, you know, like it's always been that labels run in, in a very professional way that you are, you are paid yep. what you're supposed to be paid and you never feel like, yeah, like you're saying you're being ripped off. Dude, we, we put out, we put out don't turn away. And I think he sold, I think Bill Plaster from Dr. Strange, I think he sold something on the order of, Oh God, I want to say it was like a $12,000 buyout or something. No, insignificant amount of money. I think we sold a few thousand records. Mm -hmm. So we had to recoup that buyout, obviously, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. We were seeing royalty checks within a year of that record being released on FAD. And I've seen a royalty check for Don't Turn Away every six months, ever since FAT Records has put that out without fail. There's never been a missed royalty check. Yeah. You know, they're just yeah. like, they're like clockwork. So, you know, they, they truly care about doing a good job and in putting out great music. And that's why I think that's why they're as successful as they are. They never lost sight of that. They never sold to, you know, Capitol Records or whatever and let some other giant corporation just come in and mow them down and take them over. I'm sure there were offers there had to have been throughout the years for probably large sums of money. But, uh, you know, I love that it's just been run essentially by the same people with the same vision for all this time.
Well, going back to, uh, you know, the very first EP on Fat, what was it like working with Giza X? <laughs> well, that EP actually was not a Fat Records EP. Um, oh, really? Oh, I had no idea. Okay. No, that was on, that was still on Victory. That was on Victory oh, Music after we had left. Oh, Fat. I'm sorry. Okay. I was, yeah. it, was reissued, it was reissued by Fat. That's what I'm thinking of. Maybe. Okay. It, yeah, it might have been at some point. Um that so we we'd left fat at that we did one album for fat and uh at the time i was looking for something more out of a record deal and although mike made us an offer to do a second album we entertained other offers too and um and i think at the time fat was still growing you know obviously so they were a smaller label and it didn't make a lot of sense for Mike or fat records to offer us a bigger advance than they did, but we were getting offers from other labels for quite a bit more money. So we decided to try our hand with a different label. And uh, because the, the advance, you know, helped us to be able to leave our jobs for a couple of months and go on tour and, and do that kind of thing. And uh, so we went to this label called Victory, Mu uh, Victory Music, not to be confused with the Victory Records, the hardcore label. Um, and that was a mess, man. It was a, it was a mess. <laughs> uh, the A&R guy found Gaza X for us to go and record and make the Over It EP with. And uh, the Over It EP was a way for us to, basically they told us at the label what they wanted to do. They had just gotten new distribution through Polygram and AM Records was going to be the marketing department for them because they were a mid-level label and they used the other major label company, their parent companies, to run it through their marketing and their distribution. So they said, do you guys just have some songs? Can you maybe just make an EP and then we can go run it through our distribution so that we can work the bugs out on the EP uh, so that when it comes time to do a full-length record, we're not making mistakes, mm. you know, which... I guess it's a cool idea, but it doesn't give you a whole lot of confidence in the label. <laughs> so, so that's the Gaza X EP uh, over it. He recorded a bunch of songs for over it. We re-recorded um, Disconnected. We have, a, I think we have I Want on there. We have some other B-sides and stuff. And, um, I, you know, I barely remember recording with Gaza X. I know Chad had just joined the band at that time and I, we were kind of hazing him because we didn't know Gaza X, but Chad had never really been in a professional recording studio recording for a record label. So he was super nervous. Mm -hmm. And um, and he knew he was going to be put on the spot and he'd be playing guitar by himself and Gaza X was going to be watching him and you know trying to get performances out of him. So we pulled him aside before he started recording and uh, we're like, dude, don't look in his left eye because he has some kind of an injury and uh, if you look in his left eye, he'll know you're looking at his eye that kind of wanders a little bit and he'll get really pissed at you and like yell at you, <laughs> which of course was entirely untrue, but it just added to all of the anxiety of Chad. And then we just sat back in the control room and laughed our asses off because he couldn't even barely play his guitar parts. He was so nervous <laughs> and freaked out by the story and he wouldn't look up. He wouldn't even look toward the control room because of the eye thing. <laughs> Oh, that's so, wild. Yeah, that's pretty. That's what I remember about recording with Gaza X. I'm sorry. That's like the only, the only real memory I have of that. Um, so from Victory Records, like you, you went to A and M, right? Was that like, 
like a foregone conclusion that you want to stay with a major at that point? Or was there other offers you're kind of entertaining between the two records? Well, it was, um, we got a manager at that point that, um, was experienced and, and wanted to, he said, look, you're, he came in after we'd already put big choice out and we had a manager previous to that, but he was somewhat inexperienced and, and he was doing the best he could. I just don't really know that he was helping us make the best decisions for the band, but for us going from no manager to any manager was a huge jump. Um, but we, we severed ties with our first manager after the second album and, uh, our new manager said, look, what I'd like to do since you're on Victory, but Victory is essentially their parent company is a and I'd like to see if I can just get you moved over to a and So it was kind of this upward move, but still within the same organization. So we didn't go sign with a and We didn't go get a new deal. <laughs> we, we did, there was paperwork, but it wasn't like, hey, we just got signed by a major. We were almost kind of adopted by the major because yeah. we were yeah. already part of that thing. So anyhow, um, that's how that came about. And uh, at the time, you know, I wanted to be on a major label. I mean, I knew, I knew full well that uh, all the stories of everyone who had come before us and, and uh, everyone we knew in music and bands that had experience working with majors and it was like don't go to that fucking corporate label you know they're pieces of shit and they're gonna screw you over and and yeah that happens all the time but i was you know pretty pretty stubborn and i wasn't gonna believe anything until it happened and i had the it's not gonna happen to us mentality mm. and um ultimately it did <laughs> it's very cliche like the very thing everyone warned us about is pretty much exactly what happened. Um, that label botched everything about our third album and our third album was really poised to potentially be the record that, you know, took us from that level we were at, which was great and, but could have, you know, really elevated our status. I will say that the one good thing from victory is that they managed to get our song disconnected on the radio and we got we got radio airplay in the us and canada mm -hmm. and uh and it was awesome and i think that little boost early on in our career has given us a lot of extra you know momentum to still be continuing in the way that we are today um so that was something victory definitely did right but it was a person in AM's radio department who got it on, <laughs> who got it on K-Rock initially. Um, so then with all that radio momentum, it seems like a no-brainer that we'd have a single for our, our follow-up album, our third record, the self-titled one. And, um, you know, because of ego and internal struggle, the, the, the single went to K-Rock and K-Rock wanted to, they were playing it, you know, they were playing it on their, uh, Furious Five at Nine or whatever their test stuff is for new music. But the label didn't want it there that early because they had set a release date for summer. And this was happening, I believe, like in February. And uh, so we took a meeting with the record label. We took a meeting with the radio department and the A&R and everybody. I remember we were sitting at this big, gigantic, long boardroom table. And we didn't do any of the talking. We let our manager talk. And he said, look, we have radio right now, I think we should move the release date up. 
and the people at A&M acted like that was a friggin' act of God, like it was going to be impossible to do. And, uh, and he's like, look, if, if we don't move up our release date, we'll probably lose the radio right now that they're, that they're giving us for the song. It was, um, was for, I won't lie down. And, uh, so the label was stubborn and would not move the release date up despite our begging and pleading and, uh, and K-Rock got off of it. They just dropped it. And then when they released it and A&M's radio department went back to K-Rock with Blind as another single, K-Rock went, nah, you had your chance. We're moving on to other bands. Call us when you make a new album. So that was a massive opportunity lost on that record. And that was, that was, that was my experience of being on a major label, you know? So we toured for two years on that album and we made lots of progress as a band. We really built our following up despite the lack of radio. It was still a big record for us and, and we worked really hard and toured nonstop and we were willing to tour a third year on the record. And, uh, and then the label just said, nah, we're gonna pull your tour support. We think you've done everything you can on this record and you should just come in off the road and, and quit touring. And so, that, you know, that was a bummer. That was our major label disillusionment bum out. And uh, so then we made a live record and then we completely restructured and took a look inward and decided we wanted to do something 180 degrees different. And we wrote songs and released the, the, the record Ignorance is Bliss, which was a big, big switch over for our band musically. Yeah, I guess that's a trade-off with like, you know, going back, like Big Choice was everywhere. Like there's a there's a, a Filipino pressing of the tape, even, you know, yeah. like it, it's it's like, but the trade-off is like when something's that big, they just it's like a a monolith that can't pivot when you when you need to pivot on something like that. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we were actually, before we made Ignorance is Bliss, we were saying maybe we should make this a side project and just release the record because creatively and artistically, we really wanted to, to make that music and we were all real dedicated to it and we loved the process, we loved the songs, super proud of the record when it came out, but we kind of looked at each other and said, should we even call this a face-to-face -face record? You know, like you know, Blake from Jawbreaker has a Jets to Brazil. Why don't we just come up with some different name and just not even say it's us and put it out there and then we'll make a punk record for face-to-face. -face. But at the end of the day, we decided to call it a face-to-face -face record and then we really threw everyone a curveball with that album at the time. Now, now people love it in our catalog. <laughs> but at the time, people were like, this isn't punk rock. What the hell are you guys doing? Um, so that was a that was a little bit of an adjustment period too. That was kind of kind of difficult, but we followed it up with reactionary and then how to ruin everything and and how to ruin everything was our first actual proper vagrant uh, original album, which was cool. After every, you know we we had our live record was vagrant's first full length record. Yeah, that wasn't a that wasn't a compilation. Well, the first and, that east to west comp, right? Is the very first Vagrant thing, I think? Yeah, but I think that's just a series of, se it's a seven inch box seven set, series, I yeah. remember. Yeah, uh, a eventually they would make CDs of it, but initially it was a box set of seven inches. A great series um, too. Like unbelievable, the the, the uh, range of bands on that thing. Oh yeah, the bands on that were impeccable. <laughs> it, was, it was, and and that, I mean, that's Rich Egan. He's, 
he's always had a great ear for finding amazing bands. And, um, you know, when we did the live album with Vagrant, that gave them the clout and the finances to then go after bands like Get Up Kids and Saves a Day and, and Alkaline Trio. And then it just kind of snowballed on itself and, you know, kind of created that whole Vagrant sound. So we were there for the beginning of it, but I don't know if we were ever really a Vagrant band <laughs> per se, but um, we were definitely part of the, the foundation of what would become that thing, you know? Well, it's interesting, like, well, like I was bringing up with Fat Mike, I think it's the same with Vagrant, like, you know, that, you know, starting with your live record and ultimately everything that would kind of come after that, like, it once again is kind of like a shift in the way people approach the, you know, quote unquote, business of punk rock, I guess, like it, it was yeah, just a new, new approach to doing a label. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely. And, and all those bands toured together, you know, we toured with them. Mm -hmm. There were, there were things they did that I think other, other labels would then start doing like doing a very label specific tour, which wasn't a brand new idea. They used to do that in the fifties, <laughs> you yeah. know, put a bunch of bands in a bus together and go do the, the Shirelles tour. I don't know, whatever, yeah. you know, yeah. whatever the fifties label was. So that was kind of an idea that was recycled from then, but it worked, you know? Well, even like, you know, going back, you know, like, like not that there would be a fat record tour until much later, but like, it's almost like we had the, well, the snow jam festival up here in Canada yeah. on tour, you yeah. know, you had like this idea where it's like, you put these bands together and present people like, here's a scene. It's, it's much more, I don't know. It just makes sense. Yeah. And it, it also helps solidify a, uh, a lifestyle culture, right? Yeah, because absolutely. it, it yeah. without having make, without making people have to choose for themselves or figure out what fits with what uh, you're just kind of presenting it. And then people can just go, Oh, cool. Yeah. I guess these bands go together and this is part of like a snowboard scene or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, this has been amazing. Would you come back at some point and do a part two in the future? Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Uh, before I let you go, can I ask you one more question that's like not bothering me, but I've always wondered in, in the video, did you guys place that Andre the Giant has a posse sticker on the, the takeout order thing? Uh, yes. The takeout order thing was a set piece. <laughs> it wasn't even it wasn't even the proper uh, takeout order speaker box for that uh, restaurant that was there. <laughs> we didn't use that at all. <laughs> it had nothing to do with me. That was all part of the director and everything. I don't even think I was aware of what the Andre the Giant thing that was going on at the time was. So, um, yeah, that was uh, God. who directed that video. I can't remember now, but I know his name is on it. Cameron something or other. I I'll, I'll fix that in the intro, too, because that that video also, you know, obviously a, a classic video, but so nice. amazing that even that sticker, you know, like once again, the, the small world we're in, like, here's this guy that later on would become world famous for his Obama poster, you know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And as a young person, seeing that being like, oh, my God, it's all connected. I can't believe it. Like, it was really, a, you know, a thread to follow. That's awesome. Yeah, that's very cool. I uh, The director that shot that, he had done a No Use for a Name video that I liked a lot. So we called him based on that No Use video and asked him if he'd want to do this debt video. And we had the concept of the fast food thing, and he was all over it. So, um, yeah, that was a good one. That was a good one. That was a fun video to make. 
Awesome, Trevor. Well, thank you for, well, for the music, but also thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, man, it's been a pleasure. Before I go, I want to plug a couple things real quick, if you don't mind. So we just finished up um, our 10th studio album. Um, I believe it's going to be called No Way Out But Through, and it's coming out on Fat Records, I hope, either in the summer or fall of this year. So, so watch out for that. And um, it's not punk rock by any means of, of any stretch of the imagination, but um, I released a record with my son. It's an electronic ambient project called Icarus Daedalus. Oh, wow. And um, that came out last year. We just did a limited edition vinyl for it at the end of last year. And um, you can find that on Bandcamp, Icarus Daedalus. We have an Instagram, it's Icarus Daedalus Official, and YouTube is the same. So if you're looking to hear a completely different side of what I do and a collaboration with, with my son and I, um, which has just been such a blast, I know you have kids too. And uh, when, they, when they're older and they're adult age, it's, it's just a real pleasure to be able to do something creative with them and, and put it out. So just a little sideline. It's it's kind of a fun project for us. We're not we're not on tour or anything like that. My son actually has a real job and uh, I'm the one in the house that's kind of a hack. So <laughs> something to check out if you're if you're interested. That's a dream, you know, like making music with your kids. Like that's uh yeah, like not not that we haven't tried now, but it normally degenerates into fart noises at this point. So. <laughs> Which is fun, sure. It definitely. Uh, you know, I, I I don't know if anyone needs it on wax yet, but uh we'll see. Um, is that almost like a throwback you feel to to zero tolerance and the kind of sounds you were, you know, obviously in a pop structure with zero tolerance, but in the stuff um, you're doing. I think the technology part of it is because I've always had an interest in synthesizers and programming and, and production uh, using crazy techniques with um, effects and that kind of stuff. So I've been wanting to make ambient music for a while. And a few years ago, um, Charlie came to me and said, hey, we should do a record together. And he wanted to do something like an 80s throwback. And I said, oh, I've been wanting to do an ambient project for a while. Would you want to do that? And he was kind of like, sure yeah okay so i kind of brought him along into it but then once we started writing songs we both really got into it and uh, we made an album's worth of music and yeah i would say it kind of it kind of does tie in at least to my interest in that type of instrumentation which is something i don't do at all in punk rock and um and i, I love making music you know in a lot of different ways punk rock has just been my most dominant outlet which of course I love and cherish, but um, it's cool to be able to create music in some different genres too, you know. Thank you, Trevor, for coming on the show. And you heard earlier there, Trevor will be back for a part two, but don't forget to check out No Way Out But Through coming out later on this year. As he said, hopefully later on this summer, maybe later on this fall, but on Fat Records and also Icarus Daedalus, which is, which is awesome. It's kind of like a, very much unlike face to face, but, um, yeah, really cool project. So that is that speaking of that, that, that will be coming up later on this week on the show, the director of the CBC comedy series, the hilarious CBC comedy series, the tall boys, Bruce McCullough will be on the show. That's right. From kids in the hall. From one of the greatest stand-up comedy records, it's not a stand-up comedy, one of the greatest comedy records of all time, which begat probably the greatest three-hour TV special on Much Music ever. No, definitely the greatest special on Much Music ever, hands down. 
that's right. Bruce McCall is going to be here. It's awesome. I interviewed him one other time. It was on Q when I guessed it on CBC's Q for, for like a week. He came in. I interviewed him. And the last thing he said to me before we went off air was, oh, yeah, and I, and I got knifed at a Husker Du show. Or I think he said a Dead Kennedy show, but anyway. Um, and then we went off air. And afterwards, I'm like, oh, dude, you got to tell me that story. He's like, well, I'll tell you when I come on your podcast. Well, here we are four years later, <laughs> and Bruce is here. It's worth the wait, though. This is a fantastic episode. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Like, Bruce McCullough's taste in, in punk music is right up there with Robbie Brookside's. And that, you know, if you listen to the show, you know that is some very high praise. Get ready. Buckle up. All right, that's it. Remember, as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids, and we need to help trans people protect themselves. And we need to stop hate and violent to- violence towards Asian people. Basically, we just need to, you know, f- smash fascism and realize that these aren't political issues. These are just human rights issues. These are just issues that prevent people from living their lives in the way that we all want to live our lives, just just freely and peacefully. So um, get informed, get involved, donate money to organizations and, and causes, and yeah, just just be informed. You know, be informed from obviously real legitimate sources, but if you go out there and read what's going on in this world, I, I'm sure you will agree that we need to stand up and, and do something to make this place a little bit better, you know? Uh, speaking of making things better, try doing something creative. Make your own culture, you know? Start a band, start a fanzine, start a podcast, draw a picture, do something, beating. Uh, speaking about things that can make you feel better mentally, because that stuff can. I don't know if I said that. <laughs> that stuff can. Uh, I try meditating. I, I, I kind of confused it the way I said it there. I have tried meditating recently and it's worked for me. Maybe it'll work for you. I don't know. Uh, wear a mask, give people distance, sign your organ donor card. Um, we'll get through this thing. You know, look at New Zealand, look at Australia. There's shows going on there. You know, I'm sure I'm, there's shows going on in a lot of places that probably shouldn't be having shows too, but there are, uh, things on the other side of this. So, all right, that's it. I love you, and I'll see you next week. Oh, and don't forget to check out Oil and Flowers with myself and my good friend, Buddha Blaze, where we talk about cannabis. We talk about Spanibus, when Spanibus happens. But we also talk about all sorts of stuff around these uh, these times involving uh, the, the beautiful plant. All right, that's it. See you next episode. Goodbye.